everyone, welcome back to The Anthrophiles. I just wanted to provide a content warning for this episode. It contains adult topics of domestic violence and homicide. If this isn't for you, please click off this episode. This episode is all about missing, murdered indigenous women and the reasons behind this horrible phenomenon and what's being done and needs to be done regarding it. Welcome to The Anthrophiles, I'm Katrina. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And we're the end. Oh, I don't know. Sorry. I don't know what's after that. <laughs> okay. We, we suck at this. We've never been good at it. It's our shtick. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So I'll get into it. By now, I think everyone has heard about the Gabby Petito case. A blonde-haired, blue-eyed white woman in her early 20s goes missing, and it seems like the entire world stopped to listen and spread the word. The media has still not stopped in their search for her fiance, ex-fiance, who is believed to have murdered her. Gabby's story is incredibly heartbreaking, but it brings up something very interesting. The media attention her case and so many other white women's cases have gotten is astronomical compared to that of missing and murdered women of color and indigenous women. A CDC study found homicide rates for Native American women were almost three times those of non-Hispanic white women, and only 30% of indigenous homicide victims made the news compared to 51 of percent of white victims. There are even more indigenous women that have experienced violence in their lives and so many that are still missing today. Gabby Petito was found in Wyoming where 710 indigenous people were reported missing from 2011 to 2020 according to a January report published by the state's Missing and Murdered Indigenous Peoples Task Force. So what is up with the high numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women and why aren't we talking about it more? Domestic violence and the drug and alcohol abuse that can lead to domestic violence and subsequently the rates of homicide of women is a large issue across all racial and ethnic diversities. So why is our focus so shifted towards white women? I think there are two parts to this, but I'll start by asking, do you guys know what missing white women syndrome is? I do not. I've actually not heard of that. I don't. Do you have any guesses? Um... I would, my guess is it would be, you know, when, when you hear about a white woman going missing and the whole world kind of stops and listens and has to find her, um, obviously, because, you know, somebody's in danger and you want to make sure they're okay. Um, But then when something like that happens to a person of color, the same kind of attention just isn't afforded to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I guess it could be like the hyper fixation on solely like, um, cases that have to do with white women and then all other cases kind of being seen or not seen as like like less important or less newsworthy right this concept is reflective of white supremacy and news stories are reported within a white racial frame that reaffirms the notion of white supremacy rights white superiority so we privilege the disappearance the disappearance of a white individual while people of color are othered and subsequently pushed to the side, like you said. Because these stories are so publicized, we begin to humanize the missing woman. We learn about their personality. We see that they were a loved one, a mother, a daughter, a sister. And because we aren't seeing stories of missing indigenous women, we're not getting the opportunities to see who they are. We don't get to feel for them or their family. And as a consequence, we don't get the opportunity to care. So. The second part of the stigma is that domestic abuse only occurs in poor and working class homes when it's largely found in privileged homes as well. 
Of course, no one want, no one really wants anyone else to know that they're struggling with domestic violence or drug and alcohol abuse um, behind closed doors. But there's this popular image of the perfect white family life that people attempt to uphold. And we tend to think that when domestic violence or drug and alcohol abuse um, happens in white homes, we see it as just an anomaly. Like there's just one bad egg. Um, we think there must be some struggle with mental health or they weren't brought up right by their parents. And we tend to make excuses for that. And when we look at native communities, abuse and homicide is seen as a fault of their culture. We, we blame the culture and therefore we don't see it as mattering. People may view this as something that occurs within the confines of an indigenous community, but interestingly enough, 97% of women experience violence from an interracial perpetrator, while 35% is from an intraracial perpetrator, according to the National Institute of Justice. So what has led us to this way of thinking and why are indigenous women turning up missing or murdered? The struggles of indigenous communities have existed since colonizers first stepped foot in North America, and they have evolved but have never disappeared. One thing that can be particularly bleak among indigenous populations is socioeconomic status or circumstance. Unemployment rates are high, school completion rates are low, and basic support systems are underdeveloped. More than one quarter of Native Americans live in poverty. The latest numbers show roughly one in five lacking health insurance, 8% are jobless. And this is something that can obviously put a lot of stress on a family no matter what your background is. Um, and you can only assume or guess what can happen when children are not supported at school or home. Their basic developmental needs can go unmet. Um, and as we talked about in Emily's episode, children are extremely moldable and if they aren't in the right circumstances or in poor circumstances, things can go very wrong. In many different cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, they have entered into relationships, intimate or friendly, with people with bad intentions. Seeking support outside of the family can make a person vulnerable to bad situations and they may end up as runaways or find themselves in abusive friendships or relationships. What is really detrimental about this is the fact that it becomes a cycle. Families for generations have only known this sort of life. And it's really easy for outsiders to judge in these cases where home life drove the circumstances for these missing and murdered women. Oftentimes parents don't have the option to make certain choices and are victims of circumstance. Life looks very different for families. For example, some may have to leave kids at home alone during their work hours. They might not have the resources for babysitters um, and they may need to look towards people who they have entered in relationships with to look after their children who aren't as trustworthy. So how do you guys think that this judgmental mentality can be damaging to finding these missing women? Um, I would assume that like if, if they have them that mentality like that like all of their home lives are like not good and you know um, it's like oh well, like of course they went missing kind of thing you know what I mean like I don't I agree like you have this like almost preconceived notion of like like oh well of course it happened yeah. like that's like, normal yeah that's just like what happens in that community and that kind of mentality right or they just they just ran away yeah yeah mm-hmm. they wanted to escape that mm-hmm. and the whole idea of like them being othered 
I think just like compounds that. So you don't even see, you know, these indigenous women as um, somebody you relate to because you have put them in a separate category altogether. So again, like you were saying, it's like the lack of understanding and the lack of compassion towards them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it, it could just be like, you know, when you have that othering perspective, it's easier to just push it away rather than actually help solve the problem. Yeah. And it dehumanizes them, too, because like you were saying with like the Gabby Petito case, like you get to know like the woman that, you know, has been murdered. Like she was like she was a mother. She was a daughter. She was a teacher kind of thing. And then with this one, it's just like uh, like it was just a person who like of right. was in this circumstance kind of thing. Um, Right, and because, like you said, like, the Gabby Petito case has been all over the media, but I really, I could not tell you any names or any instances where I've seen, like, countless articles come out about either an indigenous woman or a woman of color in the same situation. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, we, like I said before about um, making these different excuses for, um, abuse and things like that that happen in white homes about oh it's mental illness oh it's it's an anomaly Mm -hmm. of like you know the mother slipped up or something like that we we don't always see it like that um especially in terms of things that happen to children but i think specifically in these situations we think well why didn't they just lock their door why would they leave them with someone untrustworthy Mm -hmm. or why couldn't they get a babysitter or daycare and and things like that or you know, their home life was so bad that they, this woman had to run away yeah. or she was in an abusive relationship. So darn, it must have been the boyfriend or yeah. something like that. I feel like you see that, too. Like when you the few times that you do hear about women of color going missing or murdered, they like you, so the media somehow dredges up stories about like, well, like like they did pot once in high school so like right. maybe it's like maybe they're not a good person at you like know, the bottom of, of the barrel yeah for like right it's ridiculous just to make up excuses mm-hmm. for right. why this might have happened to them when nobody deserves exactly things no. like this to happen to them right and you you do bring up like a good point where when you see things like this happen in like white families it's always like oh it, it's not because they're like a white family it's because it was like oh it was a bad egg yeah, right. they were troubled, you know, so yeah. tragic kind of thing. So right. it, it's almost like it's not their fault anymore. Like, it's just, you know, something that happens sometimes right. compared to, like, attitudes towards, like, indigenous communities. Yeah, I agree. So, like I mentioned, rough situations in family life can be cyclical. And we talked about this a little bit in Emily's episode about intergenerational trauma. And it's the effect of unresolved trauma that's passed on to future generations of a family, community, and culture. Um, It often comes from one shared trauma, one being the residential schools that we talked about. And a study done by Bombay, Matheson, and Anisman in 2009 found that 64% of residential school survivors suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD for short. And many survivors turned to substance abuse to cope with this trauma and that explains the comorbidity of PTSD and substance abuse or addiction that has been identified in this population. So again, the effects of the intergenerational trauma resulting from these schools can include family disruption, substance abuse and addiction, poverty, mental health issues, involvement in crime, and intimate partner violence. 
It's important to note that it is disputed between scholars that this trauma is a result of colonialism or the secondary effects of colonialism, such as substance abuse, poverty, and violence. Regardless, the combination of a high number of the indigenous population suffering from mental health issues, economic distress, high rates of addiction, and a history of marginalization contributes to higher rates of family violence. Now that we've discussed some of the life stressors that cause high rates of missing and murdered Indigenous women, why isn't more being done? What would your guesses be? I'm curious to know. I think it, it you know, maybe part of the reason is going back to, um, like with anything, it's easier not to do anything than it is to actually, um, you know, take action and take responsibility and, you know, maybe admit that um, like there hasn't been enough attention given to these mi- uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. So I think part of it is like admitting fault and then doing something about it. It's right. easier not to do that. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, I feel like it's a continuation of colonialism in the 21st century too, right? I mean, you know, in like 1754, it was something like this was happening. Like, you know, people outside of the indigenous community probably wouldn't care about it and then it's it's still continuing today just in a different form exactly like i said it's these problems and these struggles have evolved but they have not disappeared mm-hmm. um so a lot of you guys are obviously very correct <laughs> and a lot of these mysteries follow a pattern a woman or a girl goes missing there's a small community outcry maybe a search is launched it depends mm-hmm. and a reward may be offered There may be a quick resolution, like runaway maybe comes back, but often there's frustration with tribal police and federal authorities and a a feeling many cases aren't handled urgently or thoroughly. So why does this happen? Ivan McDonald, a member of the Blackfeet Nation and a filmmaker says, quote, it boils down to racism. You could sort of tie it into poverty or drug use or some of those factors, but the federal government doesn't really care at the end of the day. Tribal police and investigators from the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs serve as law enforcement on reservations, which are sovereign nations. But the FBI only investigates certain offenses. Um, If there's enough evidence, the U.S. Department of Justice prosecutes major felonies such as murder, kidnapping, and rape if they happen on tribal lands. Former North Dakota federal prosecutor Tim Purden explains that there is overlapping authority and different laws depending on the crime where it occurred on a reservation or not, and whether a tribal member is a vic- is the victim or the perpetrator. Missing person cases on reservations can be tricky because, like we talked about earlier, some people run away, and it be- can be difficult to decipher if someone is a runaway or a crime has been committed for the families, but even more so for law enforcement. There are patterns of police dismissing concerned mothers, fathers, grandparents and other family with the excuse that runaways always come back. There's also patterns of coroners dodging paperwork and writing other next to the line titled race and accidental death next to the line of cause of death. It's these patterns of government officials from the top to the bottom that ignore the most practical reforms and perpetrate this crisis by not using the power that they have. The federal government has a trust responsibility to assist tribal governments in safeguarding the lives of Indian women. However, in Oliphant versus Squamish Indian tribe in 1978, 
the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that tribes did not have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian perpetrators. This meant that federally recognized tribes had no authority to criminally prosecute non-Indian offenders, even for crimes committed in Indian country. This essentially provided immunity to non-Indian offenders and compromised the safety of American Indian and Alaska Native women and men. The Violence Against Women Reauthorization Act of 2013 pro partially corrected this problem by giving federally recognized tribes a special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction, which allows them to prosecute certain cases involving non-Indian offenders. So that was hopefully extremely helpful in the sense of domestic violence cases. Yeah. I I didn't know. That's crazy that if you were not, like, part of the indigenous community and you committed an act, like, on their land, you couldn't be, like, tried or convicted of that crime, essentially? Right. Can you believe that that was in 1978 by the Supreme Court? That's horrible. It just seems so, like, backwards and, like, yeah. Like, I, I don't even have, like, words it's really hard I think for anyone to decipher how to give um, indigenous communities like their sovereignty in you know trying and and things like that criminals but it's also like I feel like the US government needs to do more especially for people that are a part of like the U.S., like, U.S. criminals and things like mm -hmm. that. Like, it's it's very murky waters, in, especially with crime. Um, and that's just perpetrated this crisis even more with how many years that these cases weren't allowed to be tried because they were non-Indian offenders, which happens a lot. Like, like I said earlier, there is, you know, a certain percentage of interracial and interracial perpetrators but these women are particularly vulnerable and oftentimes the perpetrators are white and target these women because of their mm -hmm. background and wait just one more question that yeah. wasn't revised until 2013 yeah so the violence against women Reau reauthorization act of 2013 partially corrected that by giving the federally recognized tribes which again not all are federally recognized yeah. either mm -hmm. so that's another issue um but they gave them a special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction so they are allowed to prosecute certain cases, uh -huh. again, certain, certain cases, cases involving non-Indian offenders. And if it's not a federally recognized tribe, then it still constitutes the same like laws that were in place in 1970? I guess so. I guess mm -hmm. it's, again, it's like these murky waters yeah. where nobody really knows who is allowed to try these people. And oftentimes, there's never a resolution because people don't care enough mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like there's this very small community that cares about this loved one and they can't get anybody else to care because it's not put out into the media mm -hmm. and the larger community surrounding them in the state that they're in either never hear about it or they don't care which is extremely heartbreaking um there is action at the federal level under the direction of secretary of the interior deb holland the first Native American to hold the position, the department is building a missing and murdered unit within the Bureau of Indian Affairs to support investigations and coordinate services with the families of victims, which is super important. But 
Without better data, the ongoing consequences of colonial violence is hidden. Indigenous women are made invisible to policymakers who are the ones that can make the necessary changes in funding and attention to these cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Wow, that was really informative. I, cause like I've I've heard about this issue before, but I didn't know like the details of it and like the stuff that you said. Especially, I don't think I'm ever gonna get over that, like the whole right. Like, I it, it just thing. it's so interesting. I think kind of all of our topics really touch on how like how heavily the federal government has been responsible mm-hmm. for these things. Um. And especially, you know, I talked about the boarding schools where they have yet to recognize Mm -hmm. or form any sort of apology or anything for that yet. And then with the missing and murdered indigenous women, how um, it it almost feels performative where the government is saying like, oh, we know it's wrong. So here's a revision to this law. But it in some cases doesn't make it any easier to help these communities and these women so it it just still feels like the federal government is standing in the way of um these communities having justice for their members their community members right like the government and anybody that has any authority in these circumstances are hoarding this power Mm -hmm. to do anything um and I don't want to invalidate or brush over the things that have been done and continue to, and people that continue to attempt to do things to create justice and bring awareness to this topic, but it's certainly not enough and it's coming from people at the bottom, normal people. There's, you know, YouTubers that try to get these cases out there. There's Instagram posts, there's tweets that are about, you know, well, why do we care so much about Gabby Petito? What about these women? And here's all these statistics i've seen so many on instagram which is really nice i uh, one of my friends sent one to me and she was like this is perfect for your podcast and i can't believe that you mentioned this to me and then i saw it on instagram about how indigenous women are going missing in these high rates and it's not publicized like gabby petito's case Mm -hmm. was so you know there there are these things but they're all coming from the bottom when you know, unfortunately, the changes have to be made coming from the top. And that's really the disservice that's being done in this entire crisis. Is right. That and no like, changes are being made. obviously, change doesn't happen overnight or right. quickly at all. Change mm-hmm. is very slow. But it is disheartening to see that, you know, people at the bottom, like you said, are making so much effort to try and, you know, start to correct these wrongs and there's just seems like so much of a lack of effort from the top right so there's like no meeting in the middle there and it's just like slowing change down even more it's also wild if you look at like the big general picture of it all and it's like okay so these native american and indigenous communities were here you know thousands of years before european white settlers were here in like the 1600s european white settlers came over took over the land like like tried to eradicate their entire way of living um and push them out to reservations where like aren't local to like where they, they originated and started and then now the government like the least they could do is like you know try to pay attention to stuff like this like bare minimum and it's like and it's still just not being paid attention to and it's just being swept under the rug you know right exactly right and like you like you said earlier katrina how the difference between 
um, the difference with how these cases are handled between white families and then indigenous communities, how it's often said like, oh, it's just their culture. It's just the way they are. But then you go back into history and you're right, Sarah, they have been here for thousands Mm -hmm. of years. And then it was the, you know, the white settlers that came in and disrupted all of it, Mm -hmm. you know, with the residential schools, with not caring as much as, you know, they do about white people. And now they're just throwing the blame back onto indigenous communities Mm -hmm. when they're the ones who did the harm in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's just like that big cycle. The cycle, of, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's like like the the colonialism is perpetuating it, but then the colonialism is blaming the indigenous communities for it occurring. You know what I mean? Right, right. So I'm really just hoping that, you know, on our little podcast we can bring some awareness to, you know, these horrible topics that in dark parts of history that need to be talked about more, and. Hopefully we can be a part of those people at the bottom that are bringing this to light. Yeah. You did a really good job, Katrina. Yeah, I learned a I lot. Learned yeah. <laughs> For a full list of sources, you can check out the bio of our Instagram and Twitter on social media. We would like to give a special thanks to Professors Hilary Haldane and Sarah Reedy for editing and supporting this episode. Music is Find Your Way, found by Emily from the YouTube Free Music Library. Cover art was made by Katrina using Canva. Also, special thanks to Rainette Chifu, our producer, Jacqueline Callanan, and Katrina for handling our social media, Sarah and I for editing, and David DeRoche and the QU Podcast Studio for producing this podcast and making it possible. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and find us on social media as The Anthrophiles on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time.